I don't believe Americans are any more exceptional than anybody else. We're not smarter. We're not taller statistically. We're not anything better than any other race. And we never will be. I would argue that the people who typically create great corporations, the people who are really powerful political leaders, the best athletes are not entirely well-balanced people. I'm Ian Allen, and this is Steel Man, Straw Man. General McChrystal, thank you very much for being here on the inaugural Steel Man's podcast. Well, call me Stan, Ian. Come on. Mm-hmm. So I've been looking forward to it. I, I mean, this is, I, I'm going to take a few minutes at the beginning. I feel a little awkward talking while we could be hearing from you, but it's worth, I think, talking a little bit about this brand new company, Civil, a brand new podcast, Steel Man's. And I want to talk a little bit about the, um, the, the genesis, which is interesting to me and a story you'd recognize. So a friend of mine, Aaron, he's, he's really the one that named it. He was in, he was a SEAL for 24 years, I think 22 of those in TF Blue. Um, was there when, when you were there at uh, 714. And he's uh, just an incredibly interesting guy. He was, his father was um, a mechanical engineer. Uh, they lived in San Francisco. He was close with, uh, you know, Buckminster Fuller and this sort of crowd of early technologists that built the whole catalog and, and sort of practical hippies that were trying to make the, make the world better. And literally was born on a kitchen table on the corner of Haight and Asbury in San Francisco, which of course is just storied intersection uh, throughout the 60s and 70s. And grew up in Oakland, um, went to Berkeley to study math, decided he wanted to jump, drop out and join the Navy and spent the next 20 some years in the Navy. But, but he and I, you know, when we met, uh, every time we'd connect, it wasn't all that often, we'd talk late into the night about you know, whatever, philosophy books. And, and over the years, especially recently, one of the things that we had just struck us at one point was um, this idea that in this thing we call the national conversation, you know, whether it's national media um, or even political dialogue, there's, there's this great failure of curiosity about what is the best form of the opposing argument. And, and I think it's to us and where we come from, that's, just particularly striking because if you don't if you don't credit your enemy with being having his own will and potential and capability and if and if you don't open your own views and your own plans to scrutiny uh then you put lives at risk so so the so the military always struck me as being very something they were very good at was uh endeavoring to find the best form of opposing arguments it's not it's not put that way but that's 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 part of i think the process of of being at war so Aaron and I in conversation late at night, he joked that we should do this on a podcast and, and call it Steel Man's. And so here we are, but Aaron's traveling at the moment. So, so thank you for, for filling in general. Um, I, I really appreciate you being here. It's, it's my honor. It's a fascinating subject. General, I wanted to remind everybody a little bit about your background. You of course went to West Point, which is the United States Military Academy, uh, which is the undergraduate school for uh, some army officers who are so fortunate to be selected. Um, and then you were a ranger, an army ranger, and commanded uh, in, at the ranger battalion and the ranger regiment, which is uh, both large organizations. And then, of course, you were a Green Beret, which many people I think have, are familiar with. And then you commanded uh, a special operations task force that we've referred to a few times. But in, in short, that was a, a 
part of a global special operations effort to win the war on terror, um, but played a deep and important role in the turnaround in Iraq and defeating uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq. Um, so you've, you've seen this really interesting journey in the United States military from you know what I think you've described as the Nader in 74, 75, 76, after Vietnam, uh, to this remarkable turnaround to, to turning uh, the military and special operations community into uh, a truly remarkable organization. So I've, I've overused remarkable, but I'd love to start there. Thanks for having me. And uh, when my wife and I talk about my career, she'll look at me sometimes and she says, you were lucky you got to do all the jobs you liked and avoid most of the jobs you did not like, which I think is, you know, pretty good. Uh, luck on my part, because that's largely what it was. But I entered West Point in 72, wanting to be like my father, who was an infantryman who served in Vietnam, multiple tours in Korea. <clears throat> and so my entire focus was in getting out and being a young infantry leader. I thought of myself as a lieutenant captain, never thought beyond that. I got to West Point, <clears throat> and West Point at that point was really a reflection of the troubled play sense of the army. The army had largely been not destroyed, that's too strong a word, but badly damaged by the Vietnam experience. It had entered the war in the early 60s with a pretty professional force, although draftees were there. But by the end of the Vietnam War, there were problems with uh, conduct of people, there were problems with body count, there was this sense of loss of professionalization across the force. Now, West Point was insulated from some of that. And when you're a 17 year old kid entering, you don't fully appreciate all of it, but you do feel it because before we'd gotten there, related to the My Lai massacre, the um, superintendent of the academy had been replaced. And so when I got there, the young officer corps that were largely the instructors had come from Vietnam a year or two before. Uh, they had obviously made the decision to stay in the Army for a while more, but West Point still had challenges with where do we fit into the world? We're going to get out and be military leaders, but it wasn't like the 1950s where it was celebrated. Instead, I remember my first experience outside of West Point, but as a cadet, was they let us go as fall of my plebe year to a football game, and then we could go to New York City for three or four hours, and then they took you back by bus. And we're in our long over gray overcoats and a friend of mine get off the bus and we're going to rush to a bar to celebrate our three hours off and a car drives by with a young lady in it and she literally is leaning out the rear windows giving us the finger and you know obviously we hadn't been to vietnam we sort of thought of ourselves as defenders of the nation you know or going to be and then we realized a lot of america didn't like us didn't like us simply because what we represented. And so for the rest of my time at West Point, there was that question about where are we gonna fit in society? Because we could look out and we, when we went out to summer training, uh, you went one summer to be a third lieutenant, you saw a pretty troubled force still, still badly damaged from Vietnam. And so it was nothing like the war movies you'd seen about World War II, it was, much less impressive than that. It was maybe those war movies were romanticized, but the reality is when you get out to the problems with soldiers, you just go, holy smoke, what am I about to be a part of? And so 
West Point at the, at the time was trying to hold on to this idea of standards and professionalism and values and did a pretty good job of it. But there was this sense that we were a part of a bigger entity that really didn't reflect those in the way that uh, you, you would hope that they would. My generation didn't have that experience, of course. And whenever we came back from Iraq, so I was in the Marines for 10 years and then I was CIA for seven. When we came back, we were very, my dad who was in the Navy during the Vietnam era uh, was always something he was grateful for was the reception soldiers had coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan was something different. So clearly, I mean, there was a change in the public attitude, but also the transformation of the professionalism of the military in general. I know it's a giant topic, but you again, talk about in a small version, the transformation in SOCOM after Desert One, I, I would, because I'm curious about this idea of when America gets his, gets his teeth in something and wants to do something and wants to change, like we were super good at it. So how, how did that happen in the military? Like what, what was the, what turned that ship around? You know, I, I was very lucky, I think timing wise, because I came out of West Point in 76 and that was probably close to the military's low point. And of course, for the rest of the 1970s, the the Russian invasion of Afghanistan, the failure of the Iran rescue mission. There were things which reflected this sort of post-Vietnam hangover. And so my first, when I got to the 82nd Airborne as a lieutenant in early 1977, it really was not a very good place. And my battalion uh, of paratroopers, in retrospect, was a joke. We had a lot of talented people. But the reality was, when I compare that to what uh, I commanded a battalion later in the 82nd, 17 years later, a platoon from my battalion later could have defeated my entire battalion from 1977. We just weren't well-trained, wow. not a good leader. There were just so many things about it. I remember at one point, we would bar people to re-enlistment, but because re-enlistment rates were so low, you didn't bar somebody unless they really probably should have been in jail. But we bought a guy in my company, and the last day of the quarter, I came to work, I was a company XO, and the battalion commander, in order to make his reenlistment quotas for the quarter, had called that soldier up to battalion headquarters about five in the morning, lifted the bar, which he had the, the uh, power to do that, and reenlisted the soldier. Wow. It, you know, you saw that, that was this, depiction of values that that just were the opposite of what we talked about. But here he does a thing that that just, you know, convinced me he was no kind of leader, but it was reflective of more, there was more of that then than I ever saw. So anyway, I, I go through my first about three or so years in the army, and then I go off to Korea in early 1981, and I go spend a year in Korea. And during that year, several things had happened. Some changes in the army were starting to kick in. First, the military made the decision to go to an all-volunteer force, and it took a little while for that to actually be felt because you had to, to sort of wash people through. They made the decision to professionalize command. During the Vietnam War, you typically commanded a, an organization for six months or maximum in back in the United States for a year. Now you think about the turnover. Somebody comes in and tries to command something for six months and they're coming from outside that organization. It's preposterous. 
And yet they did that to, to put people through a throughput. So they made the decision to extend command tours to a minimum of two years and, and up to three years. They re-looked at values, at ethics. They, they established something called the National Training Center out in California for more realistic force on force training. And all of these things sort of uh, intersected. And people say that it was the Reagan defense buildup that changed the military. It helped. But the reality was these actions that were already ongoing by some of the really the, the veterans from Vietnam who knew how bad things had gotten. So that it was fascinating. When I, I came back from Korea in the early spring of 1982, and it was a completely different army. It was amazing. I, I went to a mechanized unit at Fort Stewart, Georgia, third of the 19th infantry, and I expected it to be all the negative things that, that I had sort of left the United States with perceptions of. And yet already it was much better. And literally every month you watched it get better. And as recruiting got better, and of course this was serendipitous, the battalion went, or the economy went through a real downturn, which caused military recruiting retention to be vastly improved, economic pressures. Yeah. And then all these other things together, and suddenly we, we instituted drug testing. We did all kinds of things which made the force remarkably more effective uh, more values-based, more professional is the term I keep coming back to. And from about 1982 on, for the next 20 plus years, it was a constant slope up. There were dips and there were issues. We got better and better and better. And so by the first Gulf War, it was a pretty awesomely professional force. Uh, and, and it was fascinating to watch that. And you really just, you, I want to come back to it because you, you made the point a little bit. So people credit the Reagan defense bill, but really it was, in your view, it just, I mean, just good people saying we're going to fix this and leaning hard into the problem. Yeah, I mean, the reality is Jimmy Carter started the Reagan defense bill now. So when everybody says it was one party, no, that's not true. It was circumstances. But, the, but what happened was leaders in the military, and there's a fascinating book written about it, a number of these veterans that became key movers and shakers and later senior leaders, they understood how bad the situation was. And they made a few conscious decisions. For example, when we came out of Vietnam, we pivoted our focus toward Europe. Now, part of that was because we had ignored the, the Soviet threat during that period. And so our forces in Germany had gotten relatively weaker. But it also gave the military something to focus on. And a general named Pew and another general named Starry, they wrote new doctrine. They started new equipment programs. The Apache helicopter was from the Bradley fighting vehicle, the, the Abrams tank. They had the, what they call the big five. And it gave the army something to focus, something to work toward, a doctrine to, to gather around. And it became very, very uh, empowering for the force. You know, I mentioned the National Training Center and these other things. All these things come together to, to give it a sort of a new lease on life. Since I've been out of the government, the, the one thing I've learned is if, if I do have a talent, it's being able to get good teams together and put them in a position to succeed. And I realized I learned all of that from the military and the agency and being peripheral to 714 and just all the ways that we did business that just sort of get infused in you 
Um, I wonder if you could just give us like a two minute thought on, you know, how you talk about what SOCOM was and what it needed to be to do what it did in uh, certainly 2003 to 2008, but today continuing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and you have a terrific perspective on this because as a Marine and as an agency professional, you understand the good and bad of these. Military forces on the one end of the spectrum are big bureaucratic entities that take young people in, all almost by definition untrained. They train them, they get them to do things that are very difficult. Think about nuclear aircraft carrier and a bunch of 18 and 19 year olds launching that airplanes. I mean, you know, it's, right. it's amazing. It's amazing. But they do it and they do it very well. And they do it because they have strict processes and they have standard operating procedures and, and good training. But then you get to more amorphous situations, constantly changing uh, complex situations. And suddenly you can't give everybody a colored sweatshirt and have a, everything governed exactly by process. Instead, what they've got to be able to do is constantly adjust, almost like a soccer team on the field as it moves. They've got ideas in place and there are rules in place, but it's organic. And so bringing people together, if you think of a good team like that, first they've got to share certain values. They've got to have certain level of trust across the organization. They've got to believe that they can do it. So that's level of inspirational leadership. And then as they practice together, they start to develop the confidence and the individual competence as they do it. What we saw in the, the shared experience with organizations like 714 was what was unique about it was it lasted so long. You know, we, you brought people together and for a crisis and typically a crisis might be Hurricane Katrina and you put together this force and you feel good afterward. But 714 didn't end. It just kept going year after year. And so what happened was this organization started to attract people who were willing to be a part of that, which took great commitment. It started to uh, emphasize what worked. It showed that if we were very fast, if we were very adaptable, and if we were constantly learning, we were constantly, as you talk a lot, through we challenging our assumptions because as things didn't work, obviously that's feedback, you start to attract people and establish processes that reinforce those things. And as they got stronger and stronger, 714, because of the the extended nature of it, years of it, and many of the same players, I was commanded it for five years. Um, you, you learn and you start to become a deep believer in what can happen in that way, and you get better and better at it. And the people who can't or don't want to be a part of it just sort of naturally a trip out. They find another place. We didn't have to fire a lot of people or anything, but it's it attracted a mindset and a, uh, a willingness. And it, it forced some people into a willingness they didn't have at the beginning. But it, but it built that, and so it became a uh, an increasing dynamic. And I would say that when I think about that, it was partly process-driven, but it was also environmentally forced, I'd say. We had, a, we had a burning platform, we had a unique environment. The environment is a big word to mean a lot of things, but a lot of what it meant back then uh, was the intense 
focus and the giant stakes and the every day there were there were fatal consequences that we didn't make progress. I say we as a country, you, 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 seven one four. Every day didn't make progress. There were fatal consequences. Seven one four was something that emerged. There were different elements in the U.S. government that all took on the war on terror after nine eleven. And of course, they gave it the name War on Terror and then the Global War on Terror. But pretty quickly, it went to those organizations that were suited for that, had the capability. And that was the Central Intelligence Agency in supporting the National Security Agency as well. And then the FBI to a point, particularly domestic. And then on the military side, it was special operations entirely, but most specifically, Joint Special Operations Command, which is the counter-terrorist joint task force for the United States, which the most, in that are the most elite forces, Delta Force, SEAL Team 6, the Rangers and whatnot. And so when after 9-11, everybody was trying to figure out, okay, how do we do this? We know we've got this national requirement. We're not quite sure what it looks like, or what this war will be like. And each entity in the first months tried to find a way to contribute, but they were trying to do what was most comfortable to them. And because they didn't have good relationships across those organizations, they really didn't know each other. There was a competitiveness, there was a clunkiness, there was all the challenges. <clears throat> Over time, the first couple of years were pretty painful from, nine, from 2001 to 2003, were pretty painful because you're just trying to fit things together which had never fit together before, personalities, cultures, and whatnot. And then in the fall of 2003, about six months after the invasion of Iraq, Iraq is literally going down the drain. You know, what it looked like it was going to be easy at the beginning and based on, I think, some weak assumptions was literally becoming a failed enterprise in the fall of 2003. Saddam Hussein hadn't been captured and you had this emergence of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which was an entirely new organization. It wasn't part of Al-Qaeda initially. It emerged as a new thing that then affiliated with Al-Qaeda. But what you have is failure. You have the ability for us to lose. I, I took command of JSOC in the fall of 2003. And my first big shock when I immediately deployed over to Iraq and traveled around Afghanistan, Pakistan, and whatnot to get a sense was we could lose this. And really, after 9-11, the first couple of years, the invasion of Afghanistan, then the invasion of Iraq, everybody thought, yeah, we're just going to, it's going to take a little while to defeat these nasty terrorists. But, you know, we're the United States. We, we really thought they were using the term hyperpower. And then it became clear to me, for lots of reasons, we could lose. And so, beginning about the fall of, you know, when I took JSOC, that's when I have the best perspective. So, I'm obviously biased toward that that point in time, we started to realize the CIA, the FBI, JSOC, and some other entities that if we didn't work together, we were going to lose. And so it didn't happen suddenly. It didn't, didn't, everybody didn't come together and link arms. But we had a number of interactions where certain people started to realize that and certain leaders made a commitment. And right at the end of 2003 and into the beginning of 2004 with the meltdown in Fallujah in Iraq and a number of other things, the situation got worse on the ground, but it got better organizationally. So what I mean is, while the war looked worse up close, and it was, 
We started to build partnerships and 714 was one of those. It was a joint task force that ultimately was really partly JSOC, counterterrorist forces, a lot of CIA, a lot of National Security Agency, a lot of FBI, a lot of other parts, National Geospatial Intelligence, all these entities that came together to form a interagency task force that ultimately included the British 22SAS and others in it, which gave us a breadth of capability you wouldn't have before, but also a span of diverse perspectives, different capabilities that fit together. And so suddenly you have the makings of something that can be damn good. Now, the nation wasn't quite ready for it. And so our larger defense establishment interagency all had to figure out how do they react to this thing, which is growing, really started growing in Afghanistan, then Iraq, and then it spread across the region. And it grew into a force. And we started to figure out how do we interface with all the other, the conventional U.S. military, the Department of State and whatnot. And it was a, it was a process. It took several years for those interactions to come. And they, some of them were pretty bad. But, but ultimately started to see, hey, this is what can work. And so getting to be a part of that was extraordinary because the people were in it. It was, it was described to me by a, a British officer who commanded 22SS. He says it was intoxicating because there was an energy, there was a focus, there was a desire to get it done. And there was a sense that we could knock down bureaucratic walls, we could change the processes, we could mold the culture to win. And I'd never been a part of that before. I mean, I'd watch war movies where, you know, for the invasion of Normandy or something like that, you sense that was the case. But then at this point in life, after 20 plus years in the military, that's the first time I'd been in that moment where it felt like that. And it was something I'll never forget. Anyway, can you talk about just very briefly uh, AQI and up until 2008 um, when you left? Sure. A AQI, I mentioned, was something that emerged and it emerged under a young Jordanian who called himself Abu Muzab al Sakawi. And he was a strong ideologue. He was also a very charismatic leader, energetic guy. And he creates this organization inside Iraq and he takes advantage of the foreign invasion of Iraq. You topple Saddam Hussein and in the, the frustration of the Iraqi people, Zarqawi sees opportunity. And so what he does is he comes in to leverage that, the infidels who invaded, and he also wants to leverage the Sunni-Shia divide, create a civil war between them. He's Sunni, and he wants to use the Shia as a, as a foil. And he does that brilliantly. He starts to attack sort of all sides to create uh, violence between them. And then as he becomes more of an effective presence, he aligns with al-Qaeda under uh, Osama bin Laden, who was in Pakistan at the time, but really AQI was still a separate entity. It was called part of Al-Qaeda, but it, but it had its own energy and way. And the thing that was so different about it is it operated completely differently than others. It didn't have a top-down bureaucratic structure. It didn't have strong limitations on what entities could do. And so it had a lot of autonomy, a lot of speed, a lot of lethality, and also resilience. And so as we ran into this, uh, Thing, which I'll call Al-Qaeda in Iraq, 
it had completely different qualities than other terrorist groups that we had faced before early in our career, even earlier in that war. And they were taking advantage of this tumultuous uh, environment in Iraq, where Iraqis who weren't naturally aligned with the extremist views of al-Qaeda still fell in line with them because they were aligned against the foreign invaders, or in some cases against the Shia. And so as a consequence, he's able to leverage far more power than he would otherwise. And we find ourselves, it was like being in a boat in a hurricane because everything is blowing up around you and it's hard to figure out sort of what's causing this and how do we stop it. You know, something that I've, I've said often about my experience, especially in Afghanistan, was the war was not personal, but it was deeply personal. Meaning, you know, I they, our adversary was born there, I was born here, and we go out at night. And I certainly think that many of them were evil. The senior leaders were absolutely evil. Um, but the foot soldiers were doing what they did, and we did what we did. Um, but it was deeply personal in the sense that we, it, it was such a, in many points in the war, uh, an intimate fight in that we, we knew names. You know, like we, we knew the names of the targets we were going after. We knew their deputies. We knew where they lived. We knew what they liked to eat. Um, and in many cases, they knew us. Of course, certainly all our adversaries knew you, but even down at my level, oftentimes um, they knew our names or our fake names or the names we were using. So it was very intimate that way. There's an intimate understanding, all, all of which is to preface this strange transition to Harriet Tubman, where you, you know, it's you, you write about Zawakari and Harriet Tubman and Martin Luther, and all these all these different people who were just effective leaders in their time and place. Uh, and you look at it in a very clinical way that I find that I just, I think is is excellent. So I, what I wanted to do was ask you to talk a little bit about leaders and maybe a little bit about why you chose Harriet Tubman uh, as one of your characters. Yeah, and just to circle back a little bit, we are all products of our life's journey. The religion we have is almost in every case the one our parents exposed us to, the values we have and, and whatnot. And so for us to say that someone else is wrong and we are right, if you flip-flopped us through that life journey, I'm quite sure. You know, it's like people tell me now, you know, I see the, the, the inherent evilness of slavery. I'd have never been in the Confederate Army. And I say, yeah, unless you were born in the South before the Civil War, in which case, statistically, you probably would have been. You know, you may be the outlier, but we make that point because right and wrong is all where you are. And so when we look at leaders, you say, is a person a good leader or a bad leader? And that starts to put a value on it. We, in the book, we looked at Boss Tweed. We looked at Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. Tweed was a corrupt politician. Zarqawi was a bloodthirsty terrorist, but Zarqawi was followed and mourned by many people who believed he was pursuing something that they wanted. Boss Tweed, in many ways, had many supporters because many people benefited from the style of leadership in New York that he had. Um, and so if you look at good or bad, you get a value judgment. I think it's better to look at effective and ineffective. We tried to look in our leader's book at people who were remarkably effective, sometimes in a, in a, a strange 
uh, context. For example, we looked at Coco Chanel. I didn't even know she was a person when we started the book. To be honest, I thought it was just a brand. She goes from nothing, an orphan, and she creates this multi-billion dollar industry through sort of force of will and vision. And then Harriet Tubman, she's a slave, a slave who gets hit in the head with this lead uh, weight when she's young, which actually gives her some mental challenges later, seizures and whatnot. But through her own force, she first escapes herself, gets to the North, becomes free, and then goes repeatedly back into enslaved areas to bring other slaves out. And you say, well, you know, that's pretty brave. No, 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 no. If you are a former slave, you go back. It's not going to be good if you get caught. And she does this. And then even during the Civil War, she works with the Union forces. Uh, although I find that impressive. It's not as impressive as her pre-Civil War trips into the South at night in the winter to, to uh, bring people out. And you suddenly see how Leaders can have this extraordinary uh, drive, this fanatical belief. Now, when I step this back, sometimes people say, well, you know, I want my leaders to be well-balanced. I want them to be nice people. I want them to be all these things. I would argue that the people who typically create great corporations, the people who are really powerful political leaders, the best athletes, are not entirely well-balanced people. They aren't mm -hmm. the people you kind of want to hang around all the time because they are obsessed. They have to be. And we live with the benefits of that, but then we step on the sideline and we go, yeah, well, that person, you know, they don't have good work-life balance. <laughs> okay. You know, Albert Einstein didn't live good work-life balance. Thomas Edison didn't. And, and so I think we've got to understand that sometimes to do great things, even as a, a leader, you make sacrifices elsewhere that, that most of us are uncomfortable considering. I was in love with Afghanistan before I went. And I was, I was badly shaken by the way it ended. And I was, it, I was, it was unexpected. I, I mean, I think, of course, we're all unexpected. Well, maybe not all of us. I did not expect it to end that way. I did not expect to be as rattled as bad as I was. I certainly thought, now a friend of mine talks about how he always felt like the Vietnam vets looked looked down, not looked down upon us, but always, but always in the back of their mind watching our generation thought, you guys, you know, just harden your hearts a bit, harden your hearts a little bit, because it's gonna, it's gonna be a hard ending. And I just, I never, for whatever naive reason, never thought that. And of course it ended in an incredibly challenging way. Was it the right decision? Just like, it's time to go, just pull it off and be done. Um, and, and was some of that inevitable and it was a courageous decision to just call it then? If I had had the power, I would have suggested that we leave a force in Afghanistan for a significant period of time. Not a huge force. I don't think you would have needed one. Uh, but just several thousand people, I think, could have given the signal to the Taliban and the confidence to the Afghan people that it was something that they could sustain. Now, having said that, I'm older than you, and I watched my father go through Vietnam, and then I watched the end of Vietnam. And when that first happened, I was a cadet at West Point when it finally fell in 1975. And I thought, well, wow, that's just tragic. But then I watched as time sort of healed that. 
Vietnam and the United States develop new relationships. Now people go there as tourists all the time and do business. And it reminds you of the sweep of history. You know, our vicious uh, enemies during the Second World War, Germany and Japan are two of our staunchest allies now. So if you step back, you start to get, it might be cynical about near-term things, but the importance of this particular moment um, so Afghanistan, I try to look at in that way. I try to say there will be an Afghanistan next year and 10 years from now, and hopefully it will mature beyond the Taliban phase. Uh, and so I go, well, okay, it's bad, but historically, I don't think it'll be what we think it, it pretends. Now, up close, more personally, the way I actually felt was when we went to Afghanistan in 2001, we went because of Al-Qaeda and we went there rushed after the, the attack. So we went for our purposes, but we created expectations in the Afghan people. And those expectations were not met. Now, partly our fault and partly the fault of the Afghans. They hoped that there would be political stabilization, economic progress, security, all these things happening. And their own political leaders internally and their own lack of technocrats didn't allow them to do that. Now, we did things imperfectly from day one and after. But the reality is the Afghans had 20 years of a fairly high level of Western support and a lot of sacrifice to give them an opportunity. And they could have done it and they didn't do it. So when we look in the mirror and we beat ourselves up, we also need to have an Afghan standing next to us and say, you screwed it up too. Um, and so that's not being cynical, that's just being realistic. The most disappointing part, I think, is we had a very difficult time figuring out as we went through this, the, the, uh, the Doha Accords about 18 months before the final fall. Once that happened, it was clear to me, and I think most people who spent a lot of time, that this thing was over. The, the Taliban, had, we, had to, we had announced that we were leaving. The Taliban knew that they only had to wait 18 months, and unless the government of Afghanistan could do this extraordinary improvement in their ability to build credibility with the people, they weren't going to be able to last. I don't think most of us thought it would end that quickly, but it wasn't really surprising either when it did, because the leaders around the country just made an accommodation. You know, everybody says, well, we got out in a, in a terrible way. I'm not sure how you would have done that much better. Um, you can either go slow, medium, or fast. Each has its own risks associated with it. And I think that the optics that we created were pretty sad, and I don't think we took care of Afghan allies very well. But at the end of the day, 18 months out, it was pretty clear that the Taliban were postured to likely gain power, um, again, unless something unexpected happens on the part of the Afghans. So am I upset about it? That's, I'm saddened by it. But, but I think history will cauterize the wound. The, the thing I worry most about is the perception around the world that, that we wouldn't support our allies. Now, you could argue that that's accurate or not, but people around other nations and other peoples around the world, they pay attention to these things. And so I think we can never 
underestimate how important credibility is for our legitimacy as a partner over time. You know, what I found in myself over a period of time was a, 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 lack, a, a lack of faith for a period. It just, just, a, just a lack of, I don't know how else to put it, a lack, a lack of faith, just, just yeah. not, just questioning. Um, but, but as we come around, I think a few things. One is that, you know, we all, we, you know, you, you, we can only do what we, you, you can do, whether commander JSOC or a team leader, you can, you, can, you can do what you can do and you try to do it to the best of your ability. And if you've done that, I think that, um, I think you've done well. But what it has had me- I could, because this is important. I'm asked by gold star parents who lost uh, sons or daughters in the fight. And I'm asked by other veterans, was it worth it? Did I waste my time? Was I a fool to believe? And my answer is no. And maybe it's, I don't feel that way. And maybe it's, I think we can't feel that way. The question we have to ask ourselves is, as service members or anyone involved, did we do our duty? Did we do as good as we could? That's our job. And I would also say that just because something didn't come out the way we wanted to do, doesn't mean it isn't something we should have tried to do. And so I, I would urge people not to feel as though they wasted their time or their, their youth in that effort. Yeah, I, you know, that's, I'm going to jump back on it too, because I agree so strongly with that. And that's, that is where I have come out as well. And it's two, there's two angles to it for me. One is, you know, 40 million people in Afghanistan times 20 years, or, the, or the, the, I think about the human lives lived, absent suffering, absent death, that's not nothing. And, and the cost to prevent that suffering, to, 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 you know, all things, actually, let me put it this way. If one of my lessons from all this is that me, means, the ends do not justify the means, the means justify the ends, which is a Camus line. The means really matter and how you choose to conduct yourself and what you choose to do every day, that's what really matters. And those justify the ends. So regardless of how it ended in Afghanistan, um, I just I just think that what we gave there, whether not to talk about other people's lives lost, I don't mean to be trivial, but what we gave as a country there, friends, uh, it, it did matter in that time and those years, and it bought something that that was meaningful. So anyway, I appreciate that, but it does bring us to the big questions today, which is, you know, the country feels, and you are older, you remember the seven, the, the country feels in a different place. I, I continue, and I, and I feel free to push back on, on this, and, and please do if you disagree. I, I worry that some of this can some some of the I don't know what the this is some some of the frustration some of the anger whether it's with each other or politicians or like some some of it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy which the the more despairing we get the more it becomes true whereas a lot I mean a lot of the fundamentals of this it's always a bad bet to bet against America our fundamentals remain good this is the place people around the world want to come to. I tried to find the number of citizens naturalized by China last year. The last time, the last year I could find statistics was 2016, and China naturalized something like 97 people. You know, whereas us the same year it was like 800,000. So 
that that's a good fundamental for the future of the country. Um, but it doesn't mean that there aren't things that like the military, like like people in the military trying to lean into the problem and solve the problem and turn the ship around. It doesn't mean that there aren't the same thing doesn't exist today. And and I, a lot of a lot of people I talk to, you know, when they think about the way they want to spend their time and things that concern them, it is this the division, the political division, the cultural division. Um, and I, I don't know where to start in asking you about that, but I think about like what does patriotism mean and what does leadership mean and what what's what are you know, your you continue, you write about it in your book how you you wanted to try to help serve America, not necessarily through the Defense Department or government contracting, but but through help, you know helping American businesses be be successful. Mm-hmm. So that was a jumble of words, but if you have a response to any of that, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, he, uh, thanks for asking. Here's where I come down on it. You know, Americans say we're exceptional. When I was at a firework, I know you were watching fireworks last night, and I was watching fireworks, people cheering when it went off, and. This is going to sound terrible, but to a certain degree, that feels very superficial to me. I'm not saying it's not important, but but that's pretty superficial. Um, we're putting flags out in your yard. It's not a bad thing to do, but it doesn't mean you're supporting the American experiment. And I don't believe Americans are any more exceptional than anybody else. We're not smarter. We're not taller statistically. We're not anything better than any other race, and we never will be. Uh, the difference gets down to this mundane word of process, which you used early in our uh, conversation. What, what that means is we have a legal system. And if that legal system works, it balances the right of the individual against the needs of the many. And it does it, not perfectly, but it, it does it constantly. We have a political system, which measures the needs of the people And again, it should take into account protecting groups, smaller groups, and it should produce the best possible outcome for the nation overall, realizing, again, there's never going to be something that does for everyone. If those basic things work, the subordination of the military to civilian leadership, these ideas, if those processes work, it will uh, allow even 18-year-old kids in colored sweatshirts to launch jet aircraft off a nuclear aircraft carrier because there are uh, limitations, there are bumpers to the sides that we can't hurt ourselves. When we undercut those, when we let any part of our process not work, either the legal system or the, the election system, uh, then suddenly our viability as that nation goes off the rails. And you and I have both seen it around the world. We've seen too many nations where that doesn't work. And as soon as it doesn't, those they get off the, the rails and really bad things happen. And people stop believing. The sacred part of what we need to do is protect those institutions. And we need to protect them literally. I mean, that's what we sw- you and I both swore an oath to protect, the Constitution of the United States, because if that thing gets... Uh, rendered ineffective. We're done. We are done as a nation. We are not going to suddenly rise because we're exceptional. We are exceptional because we put rules in place and we live by them. What do we need to do? Yeah. I know it's just, I know it's a wild question, but but I, you know, I, I imagine at least some listeners will will yeah. want to hear your view on that. 
I think we literally need to step back and we need to look at almost every political action against those, you know, because there's there's always policy issues, whether foreign or domestic. I would like my taxes to be lower and I don't really care if your taxes are higher. And we all feel that way. I mean, so we're always going to have our views as individuals, as groups and whatnot. But our number one thing ought to say we have got to protect those institutions. So we've got to step back and we have to punish politicians and political leaders that threaten the institutions, punish them with lack of political support, with lack of things like that. We need to look at those things which are undermining those systems right now. I would argue too much money in the political system right now. Campaign finance is just, it's run amok. And so suddenly, if you've got enough money, you can, you can do things. I would look at the role of media and social media and how do we, we, we are playing with kryptonite there. It is more powerful than we know how to deal with. And so as a consequence, we have an entire young generation which is being bent by the social media experience and the whole nation being pushed and buffeted in different directions. I think our legal system, we have got to look at in terms of how do we protect that? Now, that's a little bit more, that takes a longer period of time as you look at that and you protect those things, but, but it needs to be, you don't want to bend the legal system to get your way on a single issue or two. Because if you break the system to get the outcome you want on that particular issue, it's gonna come around and, and shove it in your back next time on a different issue. And so we're, we're best not to be um, issues focused and more to be protecting the rules because those are the rules that protect us. Yeah, that, that last point is, I've said often, this is something the company thinks a lot about is, is I really don't have, I mean, of course I have some political opinions, but, but, but it's, I'm being pretty honest when I say all I care about is the process. And I think that goes for a lot of us. You mentioned Samuel Huntington's book, Soldier in the State. There's a line in the book about, you know, well, many great lines in the book, but you know, I, I always, I never forgot his piece about um, the participation of military officers in politics compromises of professionalism and substitutes extraneous values for professional ones. But we care deeply about the process itself and protecting the process and, um, and something we hope to do now. So uh, the last few minutes we have left, sir, I want to talk about literature real quick. Yeah. Um, so I love the, um, your epigraph in uh, my share of the task. I'm trying to remember. It, it was, don't, don't tell me. It's, it's from Macaulay, with weeping and with laughter, still the story is told how well Horatius held the bridge. And I want, I mean, I, it's, I think it's, it's pretty straightforward why you chose it, and I'd love, but I'd love to hear you talk about it more. But what I, what I really love is, is the with weeping and with laughter. That, that is, that yeah. just perfectly tells it how, how many times with weeping and with laughter the story has been told. It's thousand stories over the years. Um, so I just wanted to ask you about that epigraph or, or a favorite line or, or whatever. Well, I, I grew up with those stories. My mother loved mythology and Greek and Roman history. And so I was given those books and, you know, she told me those stories and I just sort of marinated them when I was young. And I grew up with the heroic idea. 
Horatius at the bridge goes out and defends the bridge, even though Prospects' success are not good. And so, but he goes out, you know, what's it, uh, for the ashes of his fathers and the temples of his gods. He goes out to support something that is the soaring ideal, and he is willing to sacrifice himself and his closest comrades to do that. Um, yeah, obviously, I grew up on the idea that you don't want to die in a forgotten, muddy trench in Afghanistan. You want to die at the gates of the city with the entire city watching you in this soaring moment. But at the same time, if you live a life that says, I am willing to do that, I am willing to do what we have to do because I have bought into certain ideas. I, I have bought into the idea that the sacrifice of a few is necessary for the success of the many. You can take this comfort. You can take this idea that even though what I do isn't successful in the moment or isn't, uh, isn't good for my outcome, that it has meaning. Then it gives a purpose to it. And you live a life in the Marine Corps or the agency or the Army or wherever you go, and you have all those moments that suck. And there are lots of them. But then you say, yeah, but. But we're trying to do a good thing. Or I'm taking care of my people, the men and women I'm responsible for. If you can't put something like that on it, then it just sucks. And, and that's what's so important to be able to to put. And so, you know, we put that from Macaulay there at the beginning and Horatius, and, and I put it not to say that I'm Horatius at the bridge, but to say, if you don't understand that poem, you won't understand me. The rest of this book won't really make sense because some part of me wants to live to that same idea. Still today. Today. Yeah, that's and that's I think important. That the heroic ideal still matters, and you still tell these stories to your granddaughters. Exactly. My best to your family, Stan. Thank you very much. Take care, my friend. Thanks all.